0: Uh, before I came to Richmond, which is almost 22, you're listening to a sermon preached right by Pastor Robert came, Green on Sunday, April 10th, 2022, at Redemption Richmond, Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online American at redemptionhill.com. Was Washington, D.C., New Orleans, Key West, Florida. Uh, we traveled fully, lived in hotels. Our job was to be at colleges, major events, concerts you name it. Infield at Talladega, X Games opening day, basketball or football season, so we were there, and we were there with one agenda, and that was to make an impression. That was the job, to be there, to make an impression on behalf of the company so that people would go and buy their stuff. And you had to do this back then because there were no cell phones. There was no social media. There was no internet marketing presence. You needed physical people. You needed real people to go out and be with real people to make an impression on them. But do you know what else you needed? You needed something else to be successful. You needed real maps, (laughs) physical maps. I mean, you wake up one morning in Augusta, Georgia, you're supposed to wind up in Mobile, Alabama, and go from there to Knoxville, Tennessee, you better know how to get there. And Waze wasn't gonna help you because it didn't exist. There was no Google Maps on the brick of a suitcase phone that we had in the, in the vehicle that we were driving. You had a road atlas. Any of you know what a road atlas is? Yeah, we're, we're dating ourselves now, right? A road atlas is just a spiral-bound collection of maps for a region. And you would have to look at it, find yourself on that thing, and begin to trace your finger along a line that you thought would get you where you needed to go. And once you got going in the right direction, because sometimes you didn't go in the right direction, if you were reading that map late at night and it was dark and you thought east was west and west was east, there was no course correcting coming on that road. You were just going to wake up one day in the wrong place. But you'd figure out where you were going, and then once you got close enough, you had to figure out, does this exit have the hotels I need? Because you didn't know. No one told you. And you'd get off, and hopefully you were at the right place in the right hotel. And you wake up in the morning, and you'd go, like, i got to get to my job now. i got to get to the venue. Well, how do I get there? And you go downstairs, and you may ask the the person at the front desk, hey, here's where we are. I've got to get here. How do I get there? And you hope their awareness of their city is better than yours, right? And they take that little map that tells you how to get from the lobby to the pool to your room, you know, and they take a pen, and they start drawing on it. Like, you're going to turn it, go up here, and you're going to turn right, and you're going to go down here for a little bit, and there's a piggly wiggly there. Turn left to the piggly wiggly. (laughs) Don't pass the piggly wiggly. Turn left. And you better hope that when you get in the vehicle, like, you're holding that thing right, and you remember it, because... If the map isn't right, you're not going to get where you needed to go, right? And those early forms of GPS, you remember those things? Those weren't much better. Right, we got one of those towards the end of my job, and we thought everything was great until you realized you had to download maps all the time. This is what was happening for those of you that remember when people would start turning into ponds and fields. Like you're driving somewhere, and it says turn right, and it's like, that's a body of water. <laughs> and the crazy thing is, it's another sermon for another time. People turn right it said turn right, you know? It wasn't much better. But the reality of it is, if your map wasn't accurate, if it wasn't taking you in the right direction, you weren't going to end up where you needed to go. Maps aren't just critical for road trips and jobs like that. Accurate maps are critical for everyday living. See, every single one of us has a collection, a road atlas of sorts of mental maps neurobiologists are even catching up to this created reality that we all in our minds create these mental maps, these maps that orient us in our lives to what we perceive to be true and good and beautiful. And our lives are then oriented on those maps in a direction that we perceive to be that. We have mental maps for how we think about money, how we think about work, how we think about relationships. And like the maps that you would find when you're sitting in your car, if the map isn't accurate, you're not going to end up where you want it to be. You're not going to end up in the joy and the flourishing you thought you were directed to. This is why we've been spending time in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, trying to do the best we can to just orient ourselves to God's map of reality. Who are we? Why are we here? What's gone wrong? What's the solution? You know, even in the church, we're, we're prone to live by other maps, other stories that would define for us and try to orient us towards the direction of what they perceive to be true and good and beautiful and just. See, ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have bought a lie and lived accordingly. We bought the lie early on and we continued to believe that we can define for ourselves what is good and what is evil, what is true and what is beautiful. We don't need to listen to God's word and and orient ourselves to God's map that would come to us out of his love for us and his knowledge of us and what's best for us. No, in Genesis chapter three, man bought the lie that God was holding back. He was holding out on us. Ignatius of Loyola famously defines sin this way. Sin is simply our unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is actually my deepest joy and good. We have bought that lie and been living accordingly ever since. And as you and I turn from God's good word, his orienting direction of reality for our lives, to something else that we think will bring us more joy and more fulfillment, We actually find ourselves in this weird place sometimes, even in the church, of hearing God's orientation, of hearing God's word, of hearing God's direction, and rather than it sounding like good news to our soul, it sounds like bad news. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, our our map, our orientation towards reality has been tainted. And today, the the story that we tend to follow, the map that tends to get placed Onto our lives or at least impressed upon us around every corner, it isn't inherently new. You know, Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes, there's really nothing new under the sun. It just takes on new dimensions. Today, and it's not new, we could go back in history and find people saying the same thing, but the predominant way we understand reality in in a secular world, according to a secular map of life, is that truth and meaning, what's true, what's good, what's beautiful, what's right, what's just, it's ultimately relative, there is no essentially singular true thing. No singularly true source of meaning. Beauty. Goodness. That's for you to determine for yourself, so go live your truth, right? There is no one orienting map of reality that could lead all people in all places towards their flourishing. And anyone who would say that there was, and that's just a an opportunity you're trying to take to grab power from me. It's just a power grab. Because that's up to me to determine. So heaven forbid you were to communicate or say in some way, shape, form, or fashion that someone else's map of reality was somehow flawed. That would be one of the highest cultural crimes that you could commit today. See, every single one of us lives our lives, orients our lives according to who we think has the authority to tell us what to do, and the knowledge to know what's best for us, and the trustworthiness to want what's best for us. And we just follow the map accordingly. N.T. Wright is a prominent British theologian. Wright said, The controlling myth of our time has been the belief that within each one of us, There's actually a real inner self long buried beneath layers of socialization and attempted cultural and religious control and needing to be rediscovered if we are ever going to live our true authentic life. And in the map of reality today in the secular world, this inner self is the one that we believe has the authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness to draw the map, to draw the path of reality towards flourishing. that becomes the foundation for how we understand our lives, the way we live, our ethics, our morality. And if it's all relative and I can draw the map and the map is going to what I determine to be true, good, and beautiful, then whatever I do along that path towards that end is ultimately self-justifying, right? Everything's legitimate. It doesn't matter. And so again, you'll find yourself in cultural prison for committing the crime of either not living up to that true authentic self or trying to help someone see that that path is flawed. And so we've been returning for weeks to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, trusting God to begin the process of helping to just keep our hearts oriented towards him and his story, his map of reality. And we've been reminded over and over again in different ways that He is the good creator, not us. We are products of his creation. And therefore, he alone not only has the authority in relation to his creation, but as the creator, he has the knowledge to know what is best for his creation and the inherent goodness to want what's best for his creation. One writer said, why should we trust God? Like in this context, why should we orient our lives to his map, his story of reality? He said, you don't have to go further than John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He said, he loves us so much that he gave his son. He wants your best to the degree that he took on flesh to redeem you. A crucified creator is a God who has the authority to tell you what to do who has the wisdom to know what's best and who has proved that he can be trusted to tell us what's best. This God really does know what's best for me and he really does want what's best for me. Therefore, as his creatures, part of his good creation and intention, the best path for us, the best map of reality with which to orient our life and follow is the one that he's designed it's the one that he's created. But here I'll at least admit that's not always the easiest or the most popular path. Rarely is it the easiest and most popular path. This is especially true when it comes to really thinking about, talking about, and considering what it really means to be human. Right? We spent some time in the last few weeks trying to understand what God's story, his orientation of or reality says about that for us. And we've seen what it means to be created as image bearers, in his image and after his likeness. The humility that comes with that, but at the same time, the exalted dignity that comes as being created in his image with a purpose, intentionally. That as his image is where he would place us, we would reflect. That's what we were created for, to reflect something of our creator to a watching world, to his created order as we multiply and steward cultivate care for unfold the potential that he's put in his created order this is what we've been looking at all of that has very street level realities that get into how we think about our vocations our our work our relationships our homes our families but I want to back it up even further a little bit because there's a, a big E on the eye chart that we sometimes gloss over and we realize that as a church, especially in the West, we've glossed over it for a little while and now we're caught flat-footed talking about it a little bit. Created in his image to reflect and image him as we steward and cultivate his created order. We don't do that in the abstract. That sounds like good theory. It sounds like good idea. We're not abstract image bearers. Here's what we are. We are embodied. Embodied image bearers. And being embodied, having a physical body, your physical body is fundamental to what it means to be human. You can't be fully you without a body. You can't be fully you without your body. Now, here's the thing. The church, at least in the West, for a while has not talked a whole lot about this. A biblical theology of the physicality of the body is something that's inherently weak in the Western church, and that's created some problems because we too live in a post-Genesis 3 world, and there are other maps of reality, other maps trying to orient our understanding not only of reality, but what it means to be human that don't line up with God's orientation. And those maps won't lead to our flourishing. And so this morning, with the time that we've got left, I just want to help us orient ourselves back to God's map in the consideration of what it means to be human as embodied image bearers. What difference does this make? And we don't go any further than Genesis chapters 1 and chapters 2. In fact, let's start in Genesis chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, Genesis 2 you pick it up in verse 5, we, we read that when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, or the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Verse 7 says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Now, if we're going to orient ourselves to the map, we don't immediately try to find the smallest roads on the map. You've got to know where you are. Like, what is the map with which I'm even looking at? How do you look at? What we find as we read this and understand what's happening is that the order of God's work here in Genesis chapter 2 is very important. God didn't make a soul or a spirit that we would call man and then go look for an appropriate container for it. Okay? This is very important. We're going to unpack this in a little bit. God didn't make a soul and make a spirit and then go, well, where do I put this thing? Where, Where is this thing going to be housed? The order is very important. God took the stuff of the earth, the dust, the stuff, and with intentionality and care and craftsmanship and purpose, he formed the physicality of a body. The body out of matter the body is not just some kind of container or housing for your soul. He started with the matter. So you've got to understand in orienting yourself to this map of reality that God has given us, your body is intrinsic to understanding who you really are. And in fact, in the Old and New Testament, in a lot of places where you'll read in an English translation, the word soul. The word used there in both Hebrew and Greek is far more comprehensive than the disembodied reality we have in our mind. When we think of soul, even if you watch the great Disney Pixar movie, right, soul, it was a whole lot about this disembodied internal being that didn't have his body at a certain point. And we tend to think of souls like that. They're just this disembodied part of ourself, this inner thing. But the word that is used there throughout the Old and the New Testament is far more holistic, it speaks of the totality of the human person, the human being, of which your body is an intrinsic part. In fact, I'll give you one spot, you're probably familiar with this. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Peter says, though you have not yet seen him, talking about Jesus, you love him. Though you don't see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, if you haven't realized it before, stick with me because we're going to get there just a little bit. There is more to your salvation and redemption and eternality than the internal spirit and soul stuff. Your body is part of the redemptive work of salvation. It's part of who you are. This is what Peter's talking about here in 1 Peter chapter 1. He's not just talking about this inner stuff. He's talking about the totality of who you are. Your body is more than just a housing for your soul. At the same time, you are more than just your body. You're more than just your body. God took the stuff of the earth and he formed this physical body, but it wasn't a living being until he breathed his life-giving breath into him. Without the life-giving breath of God, there is no life, right? Right? You are more than your physical body, but you're not less than your physical body. That's an important north star in orienting yourself to God's picture of reality because the maps that you and I are, are dealing with on a daily basis being pressed upon us around every corner have flipped that thing around. The one we tend to talk about the most in the church, we're probably most familiar with, it kind of goes along with this idea that. Our body is something with which we're to idolize. Our body is meant to be some significant contributor to our sense of worth, our sense of significance, a means by which we gain status or power or influence, whatever it is. All of it based on how it looks and how it functions. We look to them to deliver all these things to us. Now, this is where the church tends to speak. We tend to talk about what it is to idolize the body, to ask the physical body to live up to expectations and standards that were never designed for it. Your body can't bear up under the weight of the cultural expectation and idolatry that we live in. The map of reality contrary to God's is put on us around every corner. It wasn't created for that. But the church tends to talk about this a lot. We talk about idolatry, especially when it comes to, to beauty and in our bodies and all those kinds of things. It's the other story that we tend to not talk too much about, but it has such an impact on our lives today, all of us in our lives today. There's a secular map that is existent today that is pressed on all of our lives that is trying to orient us to see not our bodies as an idol, but our bodies is ultimately irrelevant when it comes to understanding who we really are. Ultimately, in understanding who I really am as a human, my body is irrelevant to that reality. See, this map orients us back inwardly that says the real me, the true me is the one I feel on the inside. This body, it's just the container. It's just the flesh suit. The real me Is on the inside. So if our highest good then in a relative world is my own personal happiness, however I define it, then I ought to be able to do whatever I want with or to my body, however I want or with to, with whoever I want to do it with. Because the body isn't the real me, it's just the container, it's just the flesh. It's not really significant to understanding who I am as a person, who I am as a human. It just holds the true me, right? Friends, this map is leading all of us to some dangerous territory, some dangerous lands. We're not exempt from this at all. If this isn't significant to who I really am, and I can do what I want with it, whatever I want with however I want with it, with whoever I want with This leads into some very problematic waters. Paul was not unfamiliar with this. The church in Corinth was crazy. The church in Corinth was crazy. Not Corinth. The church in Corinth was crazy. And Paul wrote them four letters, two of which we had. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's like, do you not realize that your body, like, right? touch your hands, your body are members of Christ? Do you not realize that? How can you attach the member of a body to fill in the blank? We're going to fill the blanks in in weeks to come after Easter. I'm just giving you a kind of a heads up, right? Mom and dad, read 1 Corinthians 6, right? We're going to get there. So be forewarned, right? So much sexual behavior in our world today is following a path oriented around this idea that ultimately our body is irrelevant to understanding who I really am. It doesn't matter. I can do what I want with it, when I want with it, however I want with it, because the real me is what's on the inside. Now, lest you think that's just a problem outside of the church remember Paul was writing to the church, but we have another version of it too. We have our own version of this ultimate irrelevance to understanding who I really am as a person and how I live. So you and I tend to read the Bible. And again, we tend to read all these words about spirit and soul and redemption. And we think it's all this disembodied part of us on the inside, because every time we read flesh, what do we associate with it? Put it to death. Now I can't wait to get out of this body. So what happens when a church over hundreds of years only thinks the spirit and the soul and the internal part is what really matters? The outside doesn't really matter. Well, I'll give you the health statistics on the Western church. The impacts of overwork, stress, eating, all of it. Because what really matters is what's on the inside. It's the soul and the spirit that God's really concerned with. We do the same thing. But it's not just these things. It's not just that, right? This, this secular map that is trying to reorient ourselves to life and, and the path towards how it defines flourishing and goodness and beauty, it's taking us down the path truly of a beginning to redefine humanity itself. And this is the danger. I mean, if the real you is what you feel on the inside and your body is just a housing then according to this map and orientation, you're not only free, but ultimately encouraged to do whatever you need to do in order to bring the outside in line with how you feel on the inside. Where there's incongruence, you are encouraged to bring continuity because that is just you realizing your true self. And so as you get oriented to that map, you begin to realize that maleness and Femaleness are no longer existing in biological senses. According to this map, maleness and femaleness don't exist as biological realities. This is what begins to happen. This map would begin to orient you into looking at these things and say that those are actually things that are perceived internally, psychologically, in our mind and according to how we feel. They're not biologically determined. And let me say this, this isn't a hot take. This is a very significant issue. It is a big issue. It's one that has to be handled with clarity, has to be handled with compassion. The church cannot be glib about this. This isn't for your Twitter fodder. This is not a conversation for you to be glib and dismissive about. And so let me say this, and because of time that we have, this is not the last word we're going to say about this. We're going to delve into these waters after Easter. And it's not the last word we're going to say. It can't be the only word, but we have to recognize how we're hearing it. And so if you've ever used a real map, there's always a little legend in the corner of the map, right? And that legend has a key. And that key helps you understand what's going on in the map, what the different things mean, so you can understand how to read it. Well, there is a key to understanding today's contemporary secular map of reality, right? And we don't have time to get into all of it, but there's two pieces you've got to fully understand to understand how this map is changing this orientation of what it means to be human. And the first is understand what's being said when people use the word sex or biological sex. What they're meaning in this map is just simply your chromosome makeup. Two X's or an X and a Y. Your anatomy your physical being, your endocrine system that controls your hormones. That's what they mean. When you hear or see on this map the phrase gender, that used to mean the same thing. But in this map, it doesn't. In this map, your gender identity doesn't have to be consistent with your biological identity. Your gender identity can be what you perceive about yourself on the inside and how you feel about yourself on the inside and how you identify that and then express it in the way in which you live. Two very different things. This map is beginning to offer a redefinition of what it actually means to be human. Again, it's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. We have been trying to rewrite reality according to our own ideas ever since Genesis 3. We've got to remain oriented to the map that God has given us. The one who has created us. Who knows us and who wants what's best for that which he has created. And we're reminded in Genesis chapter 1, if you just flip back over. In verse 27, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Remember, he did not create some inner sense of what you were going to identify. He created a body. That's what he did. Remember the order? He created a body. He didn't create some feeling that was going to determine that some point down the road. These differentiated realities that he created were part of his good world. Into a differentiated world, he created man and woman in his map of reality. Gender identity and sexual identity are congruent. They are biological realities. And you find that identity partly by looking at your body. The maps of the world today are ultimately trying to redefine what it actually means to be human. And these differentiations, you've got to understand, they aren't artificial. They reflect the good, creative intention of the creator. In fact, I've always found this somewhat profound, and I've never really thought about it a lot until I really started thinking about this particular conversation. But you realize, in Genesis chapter 1, when God pronounces that his creation of man and woman, male and female, is very good. Think about it in terms of just Eve, right? He said that Eve... In the fullness of her person, right? Not just the the spirit, the soul that comes from the breath of life, but the body he created was very good before she did anything for him. Her goodness is not tied up into her production. She had not given birth to kids yet. She hadn't become that Proverbs 31 woman that had four businesses and 10 kids, She is intrinsically and objectively, physically very good. Not because of anything that she did. That goodness is from what God did in making her. And so, as we get oriented to this map, we've we've got to understand that male and female is biologically rooted. It's not something that we have to now go and find on the inside in our feelings. We find it partly in our body, which is intrinsic to who we are as a human, and it speaks of the identity that God has given us, the body that is fearfully and and wonderfully made. So whatever our experience of this is in this world, at some point as God's people, we have to take our experience and let God's map of reality lay over our experience and begin to define for us our understanding of our experience. It's a process of of becoming an apprentice of Jesus and growing in our love and submission and surrender to him. I mean, just listen to David, Psalm 139. i got a little bit of time. Maybe you don't think I do, but I do, I promise. (laughs) David said, you formed me in my inward parts. He's talking about his body. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. David wrote this in a post-Genesis 3 world. Nobody in David's world was turning their head when he walked by. Physically, David was left wanting even in relation to his brothers, remember? Samuel comes to find who's going to be the next king. He didn't even consider David. Short, red, and ruddy. Saul, he had been tall and strong and handsome. All of David's brothers. This is, this is what's good, right? This is what God wants. Even in his own family, physically, he was left wanting. Yet when he considered himself. Fearfully and wonderfully made. My soul knows it, and I praise you for it. Fearfully, artists in here understand what he's talking about here. Fearfully is working with precious material, right? Glass blowers, the fragility of glass as you're blowing it and shaping it. Working with it fearfully to to not break it, to not damage it, until you can form it and shape it into the exact image and likeness that's in your mind that you're bringing into reality. That's what he's talking about here. It's the intentionality and the care and the fearfulness of a craftsman who's working and knitting. David understood. He he wasn't factory made. He, He wasn't stamped out of a press like everybody else. He was different. He was distinct. And the distinction that we all carry as human beings, the different sizes and shapes and colors and forms, it's part of God's created intended order. Each of it intended by him which means we were each personally intended by him. Sam Alberry probably written the best book about this that's out there. And if I had a physical copy, I'd show you. I'll get one before next Sunday. But Sam said, we can often feel about our body the way we feel when we pick up a hand of cards at a game. Why was I dealt this? But in the case of our body, it wasn't a random shuffling of the deck or the luck of the draw. The intentionality of our bodies obviously runs counter to How people think in the Western world today. The map of reality that we're offered in a secular world today, in a post Genesis 3 world, highlights the reality that our our bodies experience brokenness. They experience the futility that the created order was subjected to because of sin. And so, in our bodies that were fearfully and wonderfully made at the same time, we know what it is to ache and hurt. We know what it is to have sickness and disease and pain. But it's not just even in the physical. The body carries not just the physical and, and the external scars of pain. There's internal. In a world that's built on a false idea of virtual reality and fake reality, it, it asked to uphold a standard and an expectation that isn't even human anymore. If it was safe to be honest in the church, which I, I understand you don't feel like it's safe, I'd imagine how many people would say that when you got up this morning, before you came in here and you looked in the mirror, you weren't very pleased with what you saw. Fearfully and wonderfully made wasn't the first thing that came to your mind. Bodies carry even the emotional pain of shame. The emotional scarring of shame. Shame for not fitting up to some kind of perception of what you should be able to do or what you should look like. You realize that in the world prior to technology to to have any kind of standard of any of those things, you would have to meet a physical person and those physical people couldn't be airbrushed and there was no CGI or muscle suits. Those are real people. I mean, I I don't know. I was thinking about it in the first service and I can barely get through it, but you think about it and if you've got daughters like how quickly they go from this, this thing of like innocence and like princess and dress and run and in a moment they look in a mirror and all of a sudden they don't meet they don't meet the standard anymore they don't see themselves that way anymore an orienting reality has somehow set in that they don't they don't meet the standard It's amazing. In the Genesis 3 world, as fearfully and wonderfully made as we are, we experience these things. And it's it's not just the physical brokenness. It's not just the emotional shame. There is a very real distress, a very real angst, and a very real pain and confusion that people in this room, and if they're not in this room, they're in your life or in your family. They experience because their sense of their biological identity on the outside does not match their sense of their identity on the inside. They very much feel like their body is lying to them. And that conflict causes a tremendous amount of anguish, a tremendous amount of distress. And Counselors, psychologists, they, they, they label this gender dysphoria. It's an actual distress because to you in your mind, it's very, very real. It's not lining up. And you've got to understand, this is real. This is real. This is happening with real people whom God loves. It's not a talking point to argue and to debate and to be glib about. We have to learn how to be gentle and at the same time clear, not dismissive. And we've got to be able to listen I love how, how one psychologist, Andrew Walker, he he's writing about this and he said, there are many people sitting even in your church who experience this feeling and the thing that they have to understand about the feeling is that the feeling itself is not sinful, any more sinful than the feeling of depression is sinful. Now, it might come from a root that is sinful, the feeling isn't. Some of you need to hear this. The feeling is not, but he says, to feed that feeling, so that it becomes the way you see yourself and the way you identify yourself and the way you act, that is the way it can become sinful. Because you're beginning to decide that your feelings will have authority over you and will define what's right and wrong for you. It's to act in the same way as Adam and Eve did in eating from the tree in Genesis 3. But at the same time, for those who understand this anguish, who feel this anguish, who are here, Unbelievably brave to be in this room feeling that anguish because I don't know how comfortable you feel even talking about that. You've got to be reminded what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, that a bruised reed Jesus won't break. A smoldering wick he won't quench. This This is a weight that I don't think the church has handled well. And you've got to understand that he sees you. He knows you. He's not going to let you crumble under the weight of that struggle. His orientation for your life is for your joy. Fearfully, wonderfully, intentionally, purposefully made in the image and likeness of God. Subjected to frustration because of sin. Which, on a Palm Sunday makes John's words in John 1.14 such good news. And the word which spoke in the beginning, and that which didn't exist came into existence. The word by which all things that exist are upheld by the power, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Could your physical body be given any greater dignity than that? One writer said that to truly become human, Jesus needed to become a fetus in the womb of a woman, a baby in a cot, a toddler stumbling about as he learned to walk, a teenager going through puberty, and a fully grown man. It wasn't enough for him to just come, be 33 years old, and have a body. He needed to truly be human. Jesus's incarnation, he said, is the highest compliment to the human body that's ever been paid. God not only thought your body up and enjoyed putting several billion of them together, he made one for himself. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, embodied as the truest human that's ever walked the face of this earth, who trusted In his father's good word, recognizing his authority, knowing his trustworthiness. A man in his body, acquainted with your sorrow, acquainted with your pain, acquainted with your grief. One Isaiah said, there was nothing about him that would ever cause you to turn your head and look at him. He'd walk right past you and you wouldn't think a thing of him. A point would come when you would look at his face and you'd be disgusted by it and you'd turn your head. Acquainted in every way. And it's on this Palm Sunday that we remember that it was this man, Jesus, who rode into Jerusalem where he would offer up his body, his very real physical body just like yours. He would offer it up on a cross in your place for your sin. He who knew no sin, Paul said, would become sin. He would take our sin upon himself on his body on the cross. Sam Albury writes beautifully about this, that on the cross, the body of sin that Jesus took upon his flesh is not a body he should have ever carried. That wasn't right for him. But he did it for us. But we're reminded according to God's orienting story that this didn't end on a cross. It didn't end in a tomb. Jesus' story continued with the resurrection. Easter Sunday, Jesus would rise from the dead physically, bodily. He would exit that tomb. He would spend days with his disciples, talking with them, eating with them, walking with them, drinking with them, laughing with them, them, teaching them. Until the day would come when he would physically ascend to the right hand of God the Father, where he is right now, physically. The resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate every week, but that next week in Easter becomes such a focal point of the Christian story, reminds us that in Jesus, in our physicality, it won't always be this way. It won't always be broken, it won't always be limited. But you and I, in Christ, will follow him in his path of resurrection. As we get ready to respond to God's word in just a moment, I just want you to hear how the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Corinth. That same messed up church that couldn't figure out what to do with their bodies. I want you to hear what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul said, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness and it's raised in power. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. Death and broken bodies, and shame, and distress, and confusion, the physical and the internal scars of a Genesis 3 world don't get the last word. Which is why Paul would follow that up, verse 57 to 1 Corinthians 15, and say, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, right, in light of this reality, and right of God's orienting map of redemption and reality, there is a therefore. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. There is a map with which God has written for his creation that orients them in the realm of reality for their joy and flourishing. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That, my friends, is the source of hope. Hope even for your physical body. This reality of the resurrection is what has animated and driven so many saints over the centuries to joyfully surrender their physicality for the name of Jesus. To joyfully surrender their physicality for following Jesus. In light of the resurrection, we're reminded that death it actually turns out to not have the power at all. That's the hope we proclaim in Christian baptism. As we're buried in death with Jesus as we go into the water, we're reminded and we're proclaiming our confidence that just like Him, we're going to be raised and share in His resurrection. Friends, we should be thankful, not because our bodies are perfect, because they certainly aren't, but they are purposed, and they will be redeemed. They were bought with a price. And they were made members of Jesus. What amazing value. What amazing union Jesus is talking about in this. And so until the time he comes and we experience the fullness of our redemption, as long as we're here, we're still called as image bearers with a purpose to steward his created order, and that includes our bodies. To care well for them. What we do with our bodies, even when it comes to sleep and food and work, and all those things are not spiritually irrelevant. They matter. Again, I'll let Sam Albury close this here. He said, your body, my body, it's not just there. It doesn't just happen to exist. It means something to God. He knows it. He made it. He cares about it. And all that Christ has done in his death and resurrection is not in order for us to one day escape it, but for one day Jesus to redeem it. Far from being a spiritual irrelevance, God's word tells us that our body is meaningful and it's part of God's eternal plan for us. Friends, he made you. He knows you. He knows what is best for you. And His grace towards us in our Son reminds us daily that we can trust Him in it. I'm going to pray for us. In just a moment, we're going to invite you to respond to God's Word. and For all of those who have believed upon Jesus as King, as Savior, repented of our sins, you're going to be invited to come forward to receive communion. And you're going to be invited to come forward with your broken body and all the physical and internal scars that it carries and you're going to come forward in a proclamation of your confidence in God's promise that one day with Christ, this body is going to be redeemed. And you're going to take a piece of bread, remembering his body broken in your place, and dip it in that cup, remembering his blood shed for the fullness of your redemption, the fullness of your salvation and as you come you're coming as an act of worship you are actually proclaiming your confidence in his life his death and his resurrection you are proclaiming your confidence that his map of reality is true and it's for your joy so let me pray for us and then we're going to invite you to respond this morning father we thank you that um, even our, our hands, our, our eyes, our, our, our bodies are not just trivialities to you. They're part of who you've made us to be. They're part of our identity as image bearers and they matter to you. Lord, help us to not be easily swayed and deceived if they don't matter. Or that they're all that matters. Lord, but help us to see what it means to be made embodied image bearers of you. We ask this morning that you would help us orient in our hearts and in our own minds to your map of reality. Let it be sweet to our souls, light to our feet. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. We're going to give you a couple minutes now to reflect on God's word, to pray, and then together we'll respond by receiving communion, by singing, by celebrating, and then being sent out from this place as his people. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.